there's a lot of different ways that Ed helped me. But from the very beginning, as I do the math, he's only six or seven years older than I am. But I assumed, and especially from early on, that he was older than me because the guy had so much experience and so much wisdom. Welcome to the Channel Mastery Podcast. If you're a specialty business and brand leader obsessed with understanding what the most effective channels are today to connect with, serve, and sell to your target consumers, then you've just found the perfect podcast and community. My name is Kristen Carpenter, and I'm your host and the founder of Verde Brand Communications, the presenting sponsor of Channel Mastery. Verde created the Channel Mastery Podcast to level the playing field for the specialty brands we serve. Every week on this show, we study how consumer preferences are changing and the evolving channels they like to use to engage with their favorite brands. Once again, welcome to Channel Mastery and subscribe today. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast. This is a very special episode today in honor of Ed Zink. I am a 25-year Durango, Colorado resident, and Ed passed on October 11th from complications of a heart attack too young. And I have the honor today of having Gage Sippy, who is the current director of the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, another longtime Durango resident, and Ned Overend, world champ mountain bike racer of the cross-country variety and many other accolades. I know many of you know Ned. He is also a sports marketing and product development support person at Specialized. Hopefully I introduced you correctly, Ned, because you have a lot of titles. (laughs) Yeah, those work. Okay, great. Welcome to both of you. I'm so grateful to have you on the show here today to talk about mountain bike specialists, to talk about how Ed Zinc created community and created massive impact through community to really grow cycling, mountain biking, trail advocacy, so many things. And this is really just an episode to honor an incredible independent bicycle dealer in Ed Zink, and that was only one thing that he accomplished, but it is a central hub of the, I think, the wheel of all of the impact that he created. So with that, I wanted to just turn the microphone over to Gage and to Ned to each individually give their background on who they are, when they met Ed, and what capacity they shared part of their life with Ed. And let's start with you, Gage. So my relationship with Ed all formalized around the 1990 World Championships. And so I was a young guy that lived in New Mexico that wanted to race bikes. I wanted to be Ned Overend. And uh, (laughs) so I made my way to Durango uh, at first time in 1989. I'd been here skiing, but I came in 1989 to ride the Iron Horse and was in awe of the event. I was a Cat 4 road racer and an expert level mountain bike racer and really liked the Iron Horse. And then lo and behold, the the World Championships were going to be held here in 1990. So I came and I took part that weekend in various capacities and watched Ned win the Worlds and and took in the whole scene. I did not meet Ned, or excuse me, Ed Zink as part of the 90 Worlds. The, the, The strange circumstance that surrounds that whole thing is that same weekend, my mother and father came to Durango and wanted to buy a retirement piece of property. 
So when I went back to college and my mom and dad returned back to Albuquerque and notified me they'd bought a home in Durango and I should come up and visit at Thanksgiving. And so I did. And the first morning I was there, I call this the two cowboys walk up to a fence story. Two cowboys literally walked up to a fence and one of them, younger of the two cowboys, looked over the fence and saw my mountain bike sitting there and said, you'd be interested in going for a mountain bike ride? And I said, sure, I'd love to. And I rode up the hill with this guy that seemed to know a lot about the bike thing. I told him how great the 1990 Worlds was and I figured out right then it was Ed Zink. That's awesome. Yeah, he became my mom and dad's neighbor. So while on that ride, Ed asked me if I would, you know, if I ever thought about living in Durango. Of course, I said, just trying to figure out how quickly that can happen. He invited me to call John Glover at Mountain Bike Specialist, which was actually the outdoorsman back then. So the following summer, summer of 91, I came up and went to work at the outdoorsman at the time, Ruby Zink, Ed's mother, was still working there. And uh, and running the show to some extent, Ed was there as well. And I I started that and I worked that summer and then I graduated college and came back and and continued on at Mountain Bike Specialists. At that point, we I was there when we took the animals off the wall and we just became a bike shop. I love it. That was a bit of a watershed moment for the family and for the town, really. And so then that started my relationship with Ed. And then I, I left Durango for a period of time. And when I came back in the early 2000s, I, I uh, started helping with the Iron Horse at more at a volunteer level. And then at one point, Ed approached me with Kendra Holmes, who was the director at the time of the Iron Horse, and asked me if I'd be willing to take over for Kendra as she was departing. Little did I know that would turn into what it has turned into. And I've had a, so now I had a 29 year relationship with Ed and he's my next door neighbor. I live on that same property now um, that my parents originally bought. And so he's been my neighbor, my mentor. He's been a lot of things to me. And so I've, I've enjoyed navigating things and, and, you know, it's just been an incredible, you tend to reflect on these things when, when someone passes and you really look back at all the things that have happened, but it, it changed my life dramatically. I think Ned's probably going to say the same thing, but I think both of us were impacted by Ed Zink in a way that neither one of us necessarily thought we were going to be in the path that took both of us on different paths, but paths uh, that, that I, that changed my life forever and my family's life forever, to be honest. So that's kind of my story of how I came to be with Ed Zink and our relationship. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing. How about you, Ned Overend? Can you share your background and your story? Yeah, and similar to Gage, and it's it's a uh, a thread that you'll hear a lot about Ed. He takes a lot of people under his wing. He mentors a lot of people, and and he did me as well. I moved to Durango in 1980, and uh, was a car mechanic, and got into some running and then got into some riding and I would decided to try and become a professional racer. So uh, I decided, okay, I have to stop working as a car mechanic if I want to try and be a professional racer. So I, I had met Ed when I'd started racing in 82, road racing at the Iron Horse. He said, well, work at the shop and we'll help you uh, give you the time you need and stuff and support to try and become a professional racer. So from that early experience working at the store, which is invaluable, right? Because all the way up to my current 
job working at Specialized, it is so valuable to actually spend time working in a store, especially a successful store, you know, a store that's been thriving for 50 years now. But mm-hmm. uh, so Zinc kind of took me under his wing and, and uh, I know that he was helping me negotiate with different teams to get in the 83 Coors Classic, which was like the first real international uh, road race that I'd done. And we were talking with Michael Fatka at the, of the Raleigh team that had Andy Hampton on it, Thurlow Rogers, Steve Tilford. So it's about the time that I first met Steve Tilford too. But uh, Zinc was an early adopter or under, understood very early how big mountain biking was going to be. And he had the, uh, the experience of promoting races with the Iron Horse Classic, the road race, and he quickly jumped on mountain bike racing he uh, promoted the 86 and 87 Norban Nationals, and I think I won both those races. So uh, he also promoted the 1990 Worlds, which I won. So he promoted a lot of races that I won, and I like to think that we kind of had a partnership in promoting mountain biking in Durango. There's a lot of different ways that Ed helped me, but from the very beginning, it's interesting. He's only, as I do the math, he's only six or seven years older than I am. But I assumed, and especially from early on, that he was older than that than me because the guy had so much experience and so much wisdom. And vision, for sure. These are just fantastic jumping off points that I would love to dive in on. And let's start by talking about the mountain bike specialists, and then I'd love to get more into the events and how just the interconnection of his vision was around that. So let's go back to what you said, Gage, about you were there the day they took the animals off the wall. I'm going to be including some images on the podcast notes page, and I know that Bicycle Retailer and Industry News, which is a co-producer of this episode, will also have some of these images of mountain bike specialists up on their site and on their Instagram, et cetera, after the show is published. But I wanted to kind of paint a picture for our audience right now, Gage, since you were there that day. Tell us what the shop was like, and and Ned, feel free to chime in because you talked about the little bike shop in the back, and then what it's become now in terms of almost the museum-quality destination that we have here in Durango. Yeah, when I first started there in in the, the, I guess it would have been spring of 91, when you walked in the store, you could buy anything from a Pinewood Derby kit, those little things for Boy Scouts, to a to a you know an expensive mountain bike, and so it was kind of an interesting layout. Part of it was that at the time Durango wasn't quite the thriving metropolis that it is now, and so I think at the time there was a transition going on. As Ned said, Ed. And the whole crew at the Outdoorsman slash Mountain Bike Specialist recognized this mountain bike thing was really going. And the 90 Worlds, like, pressed on the throttle in a big way. And so, you know, Southern California started moving to Durango. So when we were traveling through the summer of 91, I still remember it felt like every week we had less and less sporting goods and more and more bike stuff because that's who was walking in the door. That's the customer base. You know, it was really exploding at that time. Yeti was moving to Durango. Barracuda was getting ready to make a run at it in Durango. Uh, Specialized was big and getting bigger. And the other thing 
that was was going on as well was the amount of professional athletes that were living in Durango. And they they all tended to circle around the outdoorsman slash mountain bike specialist. So on any given day, a John Tomac would walk in or a, or a Ned Overend or a Julie Furtado or name, name your athlete, Greg Herbold. And so you saw the evolution happening in the shop where there was getting to be less and less people coming in to look at guns and more and more people coming in to look at bikes. And so Ed reading the tea leaves, being the astute businessman that he was, just started evolving the shop. And then as we transitioned through that year and into 92, that's when the thing started coming off the walls, meaning the animal heads, the gun. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, there was Ned or Ed, yeah, Ned will remember there was lions in there. There was all sorts of stuff. <laughs> so it was an interesting bike shop at that time. And so nonetheless, you saw that transition happen in what I would guess was probably 12 to 18 months and you went from a sporting goods store slash bike shop to pretty much just a bike shop. Then it just became the bike shop from a mountain bike world. Like, you know, mountain bike action was writing about it. It just became the place. Destination. So Ned, can you chime in about, you know, how you went from car mechanic to bike mechanic in the back part of the mountain bike specialist and your view on kind of the evolution of the shop? Well, we were selling Schwinn World Sports back then they were a hundred bucks and i mean that's a that's a road to the schwinn road bike it was the cheapest schwinn road bike at the time in like 1982 or 83 and mm-hmm. people would come in and they'd see that 99 dollars price tag and they'd go you gotta be kidding me <laughs> for a bicycle and i mean just so many customers would come in and you would have to explain to them why, you know, it was worth 99 bucks for a bike instead of the one that was, you know, 35 bucks at Montgomery Wards or whatever. But so it, it was the early days. The bike shop was just kind of in, in the back 10% of the building. And mm-hmm. in the front part of the building, the back has like a low roof and the front part of the building is really tall. And that's where all the, the trophies work because Ed's dad I think in particular was a a trophy hunter and it was a hunting and fishing store up front so when those trophies came down there was a ton of space to hang up a lot of memorabilia and by that time there was a lot of memorabilia so Ed's collecting world championships jerseys and uh, national championships jerseys and classic bikes like the uh, bike that Julie Furtado won the world's on in 1990 even there's a couple of my early Schwinn race bikes that were custom made by Paramount that are hanging up in there. And they are from like 85 and 86. But there, there's an amazing, you know, museum of stuff. And they're fortunate that they have a lot of room to hang that stuff. The banner mm-hmm. from the 1990 world. There's a group of like 40 uh, Germans that come here every year. And I mean, there's several groups, but this group in particular, uh, makes this uh, their destination spot because they're fascinated by the history of mountain biking and also the trails here. So they can come here, they learn about the sport of mountain biking, and they ride all the great trails around Durango. That's another area that, that you have to credit Ed, and that is the development of trails. He, he realized early on, right, that in order to sell mountain bikes and in order to make this a mountain bike destination and for quality of life for the people who live in Durango, you have to have great trails. So, so he early on was a big 
supporter of Trails 2000, which is our local trails group. And he helped get that started and fundraised and made the uh, local politicians realize how important trails were to the people who were living and coming to Durango. Yep. And Mary Monroe Brown is carrying that forward in an incredible, incredible way. So thank you so much for bringing up the trail development. Again, I, I feel like all of the activity, and there's so much in terms of the vision that Ed had, and it's interesting that it all ties back into the shop. And again, we're going to put images of just kind of the museum facets of mountain bike specialists. There's trophies in there. Like I know that there's um, an Olympic jerseys in there. I mean, it truly is an incredible destination for anyone who does come to Durango. It's important to check that out. I think we'd all agree. And I also just want to note that he was always ahead of of evolution and trends. I mean, just in the last five or six years, we've seen a lot of the states in the country establish offices of outdoor recreation and building a, quote, outdoor recreation economy. And I think that that really is what Ed was doing from day one. And he saw how important that was to the vitality of the community and the people who live here, especially the young people. Um, literally, when you call and you're on hold, which it doesn't last long because they don't keep people on hold long at Mountain Bike Specialists, but the they literally go over, you know, all of the local things that Ed and Patty Zink support through Mountain Bike Specialists, such as the after party for prom, obviously Trails 2000, like they reached into so many facets of this community. And again, that's why we thought it was so important to talk about the legacy that Ed Zink has left. And, and I think you guys continue to carry on. So on that note, let's talk a little bit more about Ed's past in terms of like shaping the evolution of mountain bike racing and events. And then I would love to have you share the story, Ned, of the mail order catalog that that you guys purchased to change the name from the outdoorsman to the mountain bike specialist. But let's start with the early, early on races such as Mammoth and, and some of the things that uh, we talked about in our rehearsal call. If you could speak to that, Ned, around Ed's involvement with um, just shaping mountain biking in terms of a destination with events as well. Before social media, et cetera, people actually would come out and experience these things in person. <laughs> yeah. Along that same vein, if you wanted to learn about something, you kind of had to travel there. Unlike these days with social media and the internet, where you can just learn so much by Googling it, Ed traveled to Mammoth in the early days to, and that was, I would say, some of the biggest or the biggest mountain bike race in the early 80s was, was Mammoth. They had massive races early on, probably some of the biggest ones. And Zinc, like I say, already had experience with running the Iron Horse road race, which was a big event. And he started incorporating a, uh, a mountain bike race with that. And that race eventually became the uh, national championships, which he had in 86 and 87. And then after that, he, we also had a World Cup in Durango. Some of them were at the, the ski areas and some of them were, were down in town. So it, it's interesting. He, he kept changing it. And Gage can speak to this for sure. As far as where the race venue was held, in order to make it the most successful. And he, he brought some of these events right downtown. They had to actually have a time trial on mountain bikes that would go do a loop of a city block and they would take the glass out of the, uh, the front window of some stores and the mountain bike 
racers and it was kind of an exhibition time trial and they would race like right through the center of a store and there'd be a pile of rocks that they'd ride through and stuff like that. So making it very much entertainment based, have serious racing as well, but also have events like that. And and Gage, you've promoted events like that. So. Yeah. And you know, Ed firmly, he would go to, to an event, you will use Ned's example of mammoth and he would, uh, he, Ed was very, uh, he would take everything in that was going around on around him and he would process that. He used to say the word, I am processing this often. And he would process and then he would act on what he had processed. And we would spend a lot of time discussing when, when Ned talks about moving venues and, and trying different things. He was a firm believer in critical mass that if you could ha- you if you had an event, it needed to look like someone was there in order for anyone to care. And so we would always spend a lot of time figuring out how we could do new things, try new things, and get people out there to spectate, take part in it, feel like they were a part of the scene, if you will. And and Kristen, you've been to the Iron Horse. I you know we try lots of different things. So you if you've been to the mountain bike race through the bar. You know, yep. it's just, it's kind of a crazy scene that you don't necessarily get anywhere else. And so Ed was very systematic in his approach to how he tried to weave all aspects together as best possible to include the largest group of people possible. And that included how he ran the shop to some extent. So we we spent a lot of time when I worked at Mountain Bike Specialist, we spent a lot of time figuring out how we could sell $500 bikes to people at the time. And those were rock hoppers and how we could sell a $3,000 bike and how they could all interact together. That's very much how Ed wanted to run the events too. He, he loved having Ned over in there, but he also liked having Jane Doe there that just bought a bike and so and was just getting into it. So I think Ed was very holistic in his approach around how do I involve the most amount of people to get this thing off the ground. And in today's marketing parlance, we call that inclusivity, right? <laughs> and this is something that it just was part of how he operated as a human being, which is great. And everybody literally was welcome. I think from the time you do packet pickup through the entire weekend, it feels like a family affair, but then you have literally like people that are known on a global level from their athletic press um, participating in these events right here in our hometown of Durango. So it's it's just really interesting because all of this happened before social media. And I think easily you know, the work that Ed did around cycling in and around Durango and in the United States really got out there on a level that we see things get out there today on a, in a viral manner before there was a conduit for virality. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I'm sure part of that has to do with like a tight community of people in mountain biking. And it really comes right back around to communi- you know, building community around this. And I think, again, everything that, I, that we see that he impacted in this town had to do with helping the most people in the community and, and really leaving no stone unturned. And the fact that he really always came from a place of service. And again, we're this is co-produced by Bicycle Retailer and Industry News. I think all of us on this call know in different ways just the struggle and the challenges that independent bicycle dealers face today as the consumer keeps evolving. And both of you have mentioned multiple times in just sharing your memories of your time with Ed 
that he was always focused on the consumer experience first. And in today's marketing parlance, that's called consumer centricity, right? (laughs) It's just a way of doing business as a specialty business owner, working to further specialty disciplines of cycling. This is not like, let's be everything to everyone. He literally understood the value of a niche, but also was very inclusive around it and focused on the special consumer that drew into the shop, both as tourists, but definitely from a local standpoint. And I just want to take a few minutes to talk about the incredible team working at Mountain Bike Specialists. First of all, very little turnover. And that's incredibly rare, having worked in these markets for a long time, first as a trade reporter. One of the things that I've heard from clients over the past 20 years and 10 years prior to that as a journalist is just the challenges at retail with turnover. And some of that comes from brands saying it's impossible to get our brand story told because there's so much turnover. Well, not at the mountain bike specialists, everybody. I mean, literally, they know your name as a local when you walk in there. They know exactly what bike you're calling about before you even get there. They know exactly like what the last tune-up was that they did on your bike if you're a regular customer there. I mean, I literally have never experienced anything like that. (laughs) And I'm a shopper. I love to shop. Everywhere I go, I always pop into stores. And I have to tell you, Mountain Bike Specialist is literally the best mountain bike shop that I've ever gone to, cycling shop. Um, And that store has literally helped me. The staff at that store has helped me do some pretty crazy things as a not young mom, okay? Like, (laughs) it really, I don't think I would have the confidence to try and do Leadville for the first time in my late 40s if I didn't have the Mike Phillips and and Darian and, and Dane and all of the people there helping me it does take a village, let's just put it that way. So I also want to just put a shout out to the incredible, incredible people that make mountain bike specialists the destination that it is for locals as well. Kristen, if I can add something to that, as in, you know, Ned and I both have been employees at the store. I am fortunate enough that both of my kids have worked at the store. My son currently works there one day after school a week. But one of the things that when you talk about long-term success in any business, let alone be a bicycles, is is the consistency component. And, you know, John Glover's been there since they invented the bicycle. And I say that jokingly, but he's been there a long time. <laughs> but I attend quite a few mountain bike specialist events for one reason or another. And the fact that they have a weekly store meeting and have since for 48, 50 years, they never miss a weekly store meeting where they get the employees together. And they invite me to attend those to talk about the Iron Horse or things we have going on in the community. And it is it is Ed and Patty's passion and John's passion and the crew's passion to make sure they do the best. But I mean, they spend a good hour to an hour and a half once a week, really trying to hone in how they can perfect their craft after 48 years or 50 years. And so I think that's part of what keeps them successful and makes your experience great, my experience great. And then the other thing that, you know, we were just having this discussion and Ned will, Ned has been to more of these than I have, I think, but the annual mountain bike specialist Christmas party is coming up and that's always held at the Zinc Ranch. And this year, uh, there was some question on whether it would be at the Zinc Ranch because it's gone. And of course, Patty stepped up and there's no place that this party would be other than the Zinc Ranch. You know what I mean? So the mm-hmm. family atmosphere, the taking care of their employees, the part of the community, it isn't just something they talk about. It has always been something they have done at 100%. 
And Ned, I, I would love to have you chime in about um, the mail order business that changed the name of the company and then your take on the mountain bike specialists as well. Well, before I talk about that, along the same vein of the company meetings, I can remember those company meetings back in 1982, the, the store meetings. And one thing Zinc would emphasize, and, and we heard Gage say, okay, you've got all these international stars that are constantly in the store, you know, and to this day, it's like Payson McElveen, Quinn Simmons, Sepp Kuss, Todd Wells. Uh, so all these people are constantly in the store. And Zinc would emphasize from way back in the early days, don't be elitist. Don't be swayed by the fact that you're working on the bikes and dealing with some of the you know most famous cyclists in the world. Focus on respecting all the customers. And Zinc could speak to that because Zinc was a recreational cyclist. I mean, he he's done some races, but he's not a bike racer. And uh, you know, he's not an accomplished mountain biker. So so he could speak to that what the recreational cyclist was looking for and what they found threatening. So he would emphasize that back in the day. And I know he still emphasizes it at the, uh, the store meetings here. What is it? 30 years later, at least. Mm -hmm. So Zinc very much lived that recreational cyclist and he can understand that cyclist. And he emphasized it. He would tell us, I don't want to hear anybody making fun of any cyclist, even if they're not around, even to each other. I don't want you making fun of of certain customers, <laughs> you know, I, because we were all, you know, a bunch of sarcastic kids who that's what you tend to do. <laughs> you know, you would be sarcastic about people, but he didn't even want to hear it when the customers weren't around. So he emphasized it from early on. An example of Zinc's vision, I think, was in the mid 80s, uh, we realized there was a, the magazines were writing about mountain bikes, mountain bike races, and, uh, and all these different mountain bike models that, that were for sale, but they weren't for sale in bike shops. It was hard to find bike shops that carried a very good, uh, selection of, of mountain bikes. So, uh, he saw an opportunity in acquiring this um, mountain bike specialist mail order. It was in Fort Collins and uh, it, it was actually going out of business. So he, he bought the assets. I was a, a small investor as was uh, John Glover, the current manager of mountain bike specialists. And we went to meet with our vendors and there was going to be some leftover debt, which we were not acquiring. So, uh, so the meetings were going to be kind of a little tenuous, you might say. And, mm -hmm. and the guys we were meeting with were Tom Ritchie, Gary Fisher, Bob Buckley, who is the uh, founder of Marin Mountain Bikes. So we took a trip out to the Bay Area. And I remember we met with Tom Ritchie in his house in Redwood City. And we sat down at the table in his kitchen. And Zinc was the one who was doing all the negotiating. I was, I was just there as support. It was amazing to see Zinc develop a relationship with Tom Ritchie. He was humble. He was sympathetic to the fact that there was going to be some uh, leftover debt that we were not going to take care of. But he also explained that, you know, we love your product. We want to continue to sell it and it's important for us. And we came out of every one of those conversations with uh, with Tom and with Gary Fisher, with Bob Buckley, 
We also met with Bontrager over in Santa Cruz, and it was all very positive. And they were happy to see us continue to represent their line and in the mountain bike specialist catalog. It was just interesting how Zinc, who was a rancher by trade, a bit of a renaissance man, right? I mean, he could travel to the Bay Area and speak to these guys who were not small egos either in many of those cases, (laughs) owners and starters of, of the big companies. So it was impressive for me to see how Ed talked with these guys and, and developed a relationship from something that started out being kind of negative for them. And I just, I guess I'm kind of curious, and this is um, a question that we didn't talk through prior to me hitting the record button, but obviously he was the first. He really built the destination in the mountain bike specialist. The market has changed a lot over the years, but there's some things that I think have really stayed the same. And he really has created a sense of consistency throughout a lot of the storm of change. Uh, and this is even true, Gage, I'm sure, with um, you know the, the road racing facet of the Iron Horse. How would he coach you guys or, or talk with you as partners in terms of just the evolution of cycling in the community of Durango and also in the United States? Um, I don't know if you can speak to that at all in terms of like how the shop welcomed competition and how it was better for the community, et cetera. Like anything you can share on that front, I think would be valuable to the audience, especially of bicycle retailer. You know, so the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic and mountain bike specialists were obviously woven very closely together. For the many of the years, the Iron Horse Bike, which is, you know, it's been around since 1972, the Iron Horse has, so the shop hasn't been around much longer than that. But they've always been tied together. But but that did not Ed was passionate about making sure that even though MBS was closely tied to the event, that we were always reaching out to the other bike shops in town, and they've changed through the years, to make sure they felt like they were part of it too, part of the Iron Horse. So he did not want to have a lock on the fact that the Iron Horse was kind of MBS related. He was he was very passionate about the idea that you know, if the tide rises, you know, that it'll help all the boats in the water. And so he was excited that the Iron Horse had grown and gotten to something that had become somewhat of a staple on the cycling calendar, certainly a staple of a holiday weekend calendar here in Durango. And he wanted to invite all of the shops to take part in it. We have events that are sponsored by the other bike shops in town that happen at the Iron Horse. And so Ed was very much, to use your word again, inclusive in the idea that the more people we got involved in this thing, the better off we all were going to be. And he was not afraid of the competition. He would study the competition and try to understand what they were doing well and how they could adopt that, change that, whatever that may be. But he was he he never was happy to sit and say, this is the way it's been done. That means this is the way we're always going to do it. So he was always charging forward, but he was not afraid of sticking with something that was working well. And it was going to take a little more of a current to get him off that, if you will. And so he he definitely had a good mix of looking forward and looking back and balancing those things to try to make the best possible outcome go for either the shop, the event. You know, he was, he was, Ned uses the statement renaissance, man. That's a true statement, but he was very good at taking in all aspects of what was going on around him and putting that into action, if you will. I would say that, Gage, and you you might agree with this, that an important thing for a 
a race, an event to do is to adapt to the different times, which is what the Iron Horse has done over the years. And I know that, that you are even now looking at how should the, the Iron Horse Classic evolve. You know, yep. you started a gravel race a couple of years ago because, you know, the, the gravel side is growing. There were several years where we didn't have a mountain bike race because the numbers were down. And then uh, we looked at different ways of promoting it. And now the, the mountain bike part of it is successful again. Similar in a bike shop, Kristen, how uh, a lot of bike shops don't adapt quickly enough to changes in the demand for the different kinds of models. And mm-hmm. or they adapt too slowly and it affects their profitability. Over the years, right? I mean, XC riding was big and now trail riding is much bigger. Gravel bikes have now taken over and they're now larger than road bikes. I remember fat bikes like three years ago were huge. And if you weren't careful, you would end up with too many fat bikes because that, that trend changed very quickly. And now e-bikes is the big growth area. And Zinc saw that and embraced it early on. And he's been a, uh, a big advocate of e-bikes. And it's one thing that's really helping the shop right now. And also the community as a destination. I mean, that's one of the things I know, um, you know, looking at just the amount of, of politics involved in, in enabling e-bikes to be a viable category for an IBD. Um, but I know that he was obviously working at that from a, a, a community standpoint, not just looking at the best interest of his shop. No, he was leading that charge, make no mistake. He believed in the e-bike thing, like Ned said, years ago and knew the wave was coming. And back to how he handled it way back when mountain bikes were coming in the, in the 80s, he started enlisting the community, the different government organizations and started the dialogue because he knew that, you know, to one of those things, without the trails, without the paths, without the roads, the rest of it doesn't work. So he was he he was all encompassing in his ability to see all the facets that needed to come together to make it work. And I think part of that comes from him working the front lines. I mean, he was in the shop. He's been at the events. He's been really part of I think just the living, breathing entity of cycling evolving as a as a category in his shop as a part of the community here and then on a national level, I believe. One of the things I wanted to ask about is, remember when the race was sanctioned by USA Cycling, the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic, and that changed. I thought we could have you speak a little bit to that because I think there's a, a lot of people in the audience who are maybe looking at what that might look like for gravel. And when we, I think that there was some talk in the community when that Remember, like, you have to have a day license and all that stuff to do the Iron Horse. It went away, and honestly, it didn't affect the race at all, again, because you were focused on the people participating, not so much the tiny percentage of people who were actually looking at it to, like, further their race palmeris. You know what I mean? So if you could talk a little bit about that, I think that could be interesting in terms of looking at history as a marker for the future. That topic could probably be a podcast in itself. In and of itself, I know. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm doing the gravel mob in a couple of weeks. It's in Ojai. And I believe that has a, I'm not exactly sure, but it's a, it's a USA cycling uh, permit, but it's a Grand Fondo permit. Interesting. So, so they do a permitting for events that aren't races. Engage, maybe you're more familiar with that, but. Yeah, how, the, how USA Cycling evolves with, with event promotion is, 
that's a complicated topic. Well, I'm curious. I'm, yeah, I'm curious to hear kind of how how did this come to be where it was a sanctioned race and then it wasn't anymore, and then maybe weigh in on on your thoughts on that, Gage. When I started, we were as the director, we were a sanctioned event, and and the Iron Horse was the longest running sanctioned event USA Cycling had. And so Ed had been on the board of directors at USN Cycling. He was instrumental in when Norba was taken over by USA Cycling, the National Off-Road Bicycle Association, which was kind of the predecessor organization that started mountain bike racing from a sanctioning standpoint. So Ed had been in all the governmental bodies of cycling. He had ties to UCI. He had, you know, he'd done it all. He helped write the rule book for the Olympic rules. He helped write the 1990 world stuff. So he knew all the stuff in and out. And how it kind of started transpiring was that this was one of the things that Ed and I spent a lot of time on. I guess that must have been six or seven years ago, looking back on it. But what we were trying to understand, the Iron Horse was big. We were successful. But we were trying to understand what the value proposition was anymore with being a sanctioned event. And you brought up a couple things that that were starting to run, uh, they're starting to become a challenge for us. One was those darn waivers. And the waivers, we had to have two waivers at registration, one for the Iron Horse and one for USA Cycling. Well, you know how much people like standing in lines. And then when they get to the front of the line, they get to fill out not one, but two waivers. (laughs) <laughs> and then they find out they're going to spend $10 on a one-day license. And, you know, so those kind of things. And then online reg- registration was coming about in a much stronger fashion. And there was some questions around, can you do an e-signature or not? So we convened with our attorneys at the Iron Horse. And we started looking at it in the insurance aspects and said, we don't necessarily need to be a sanctioned event. And we could probably do away with a couple things that are aggravating our customer base. That was a very hard one for Ed. If Ed and I ever had challenges with each other, that was one of those times where he and I went back and forth a lot because I was in the camp of it's time to move on from USA Cycling and Ed was really struggling with that. We had several phone conferences with the president of USAC and so on and so forth. And and candidly, at one point we were at such heads with USA Cycling and they weren't willing to bend our way and we weren't really willing to bend theirs and Ed finally hung up the phone and said, okay, we're leaving. And that's how it happened. And so Ed struggled with it, but he understood it, knew we had to evolve in that direction. But to, you know, up until he passed away, he and I would still have discussions about, is there a place for USA Cycling again in our events? And let's make sure we keep the dialogue open with them. So we, it wasn't like he never wanted to do anything with them again. It, it just didn't fit our business model at the time, but we have been successful without it. And I think the challenge for USA Cycling is that so many of these big events now are not sanctioned. And so I go to all of the Epic Rides events or most of the Epic Rides events. And I go to, you know, my children participate in the high school leagues, the NICA stuff, and and it's thriving and it's not thriving under a USA Cycling umbrella. So I think there's just a problem of trying to get that alignment in place but we certainly were a tipping point probably for a lot of other event promoters when the Iron Horse said, you know, we're going to soldier out on our own and do it without. And and I know others went with us. I totally agree. And that's exactly what I was hoping you'd share. I just think it's a lot, it can, you can bring a lot of illumination to the topic to a lot of people listening. Yeah. It, 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 and, and it's, I support and we support what USA Cycling is doing. It's evolution, though, and looking at the business model and what works and, 
And it's just real hard for an event promoter, an event business like we are to look at it and say it meets our needs. I don't think we're different than any business. You have to look at those things from time to time and say what works, what doesn't. That didn't work. I am happy USA Cycling is out doing what they do, but I don't know if that model fits it for them anymore. That may not be where their strong suit is. I totally hear you. As we look to wrap up here, and you've both been so gracious with your time, I think one of the other topics that we would be remiss to not spend a little time talking about is the vision that Ed had around trail development. And if anybody knows Durango, we have a lot of public lands surrounding our uh, community here, and there's a lot of different leadership entities <laughs> of those you know, land managers, if you will, with different agendas. And I think that, obviously, Trails 2000 and Mary Monroe Brown does an exceptional job, I think, bringing multiple leaders together and keeping conversation going around multiple stakeholders. But I believe that that was something that Ed really started in this community. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. With Trails 2000, I think creating an organization, and I, I gauge, I guess I don't know if he created that organization, but he was, he was one of the founders of Trails 2000. I, I think that's probably accurate. He was the leader of Trails 2000 and on the board for a while. And he, he brought in Bill Manning, who did an amazing job. And that's one thing Zinc is good at, is finding good people to help him. And Gage, you're a prime example of that, right? He believed in you enough to, to have you take over the Iron Horse Classic. John Glover, who has worked so long at the bike shop and been successful at it. Bill Manning at, at Trails 2000. And now Mary Monroe, who's doing such a great job at Trails 2000 as well. But in trail advocacy, he recognized early on, and he owned property himself that he would assign trail easements to, like over on the on West Side Mountain Park, as some people call it. But uh, so, I mean, he, he also was involved in uh, getting trail easements on property that even he owned and, uh, and getting other people to realize how important it was, like the political entities. Because, I mean, it's, it's a huge draw, tourist draw for Durango. And uh, it, it's super important, not only for the quality of life for the people living there, but, but also to bring those tourist dollars to Durango. If I can add to what Ned just said, I, uh, Ed and I spent some time around when the, when the 1990 World's 25th anniversary came and went a few years ago, we celebrated that here in Durango. And one of the things we did in conjunction with Mary Monroe and Trails 2000 is we had a land symposium where all of those leaders of the different land organizations, federal, state, you, you name it, we got them all together to discuss where we're at 25 years later. But one of the things Ed pointed out was that at the 1990 Worlds, they held a land symposium at the 90 Worlds. It was kind of the first one around the mountain bike question. So Ed saw that going on then, and he was passionate about 25 years later, we getting some of those. He invited people that were there in 1990 to come back, even though they were retired from their federal jobs. He brought them here to Durango so we could reflect on what has gone on in 25 years since the 90 worlds with trails and that kind of thing. So again, Ed's forward thinking vision around we've We've got to put the full package together here because if we're missing many components, you know, you can't, you can only take a few components off a bike before it doesn't work anymore. 
And Ed understood that it took all components to make this whole thing work. And, and trails and advocacy and all of those things were paramount to making it successful. So up until, well, as an example, I just helped hold a symposium type event at a much smaller scale at the Colorado High School Mountain Bike Championships that were held here in Durango. That was Ed's vision uh, before he passed away. He didn't know he was going to pass away, but he wanted to make sure that we got people up to this new land we have in Durango called Durango Mesa Park to make sure that we got the political leaders and so on and so forth up there to see what goes on and what could be done with that particular piece of property. So he was already trying to share with them his vision of where our community needed to go. So it was never ending with Ed. That is a great story. I'm so glad that you shared that. Before we wrap up here, is there anything that you guys would like to share about Ed and his impact on your lives that we didn't cover here today? I'll go first, Ned. Kristen, I, 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 we had a uh, strategic planning session yesterday for the Iron Horse Bicycle Classic. And when we originally planned this meeting, Ed was to be part of it and was, was part of the direction as we head into the 50th Iron Horse and we all sat there yesterday trying to understand what the road forward looks like without Ed. And I'm here to tell you that's hard to figure out. So we all, you know, talked about how we're going to have to double down, triple down, quadruple down to try to fulfill what Ed's legacy would have been had he been around many more years. And so I think for me, the if you were at Ed's memorial service, the thing that rang true in all of that was Ed's willingness to get out there and get involved and stuff and try to do a good job and get people involved with him to try to carry this idea forward, whether it was at the shop, at the bike race, trail advocacy, whatever it was, he wasn't afraid to roll up his sleeves. And so my takeaway from my relationship with Ed is he made me a better man around getting involved and, and taking action. And, and so uh, I, I just, you know, we have lost someone that we are not going to be able to replace. And it is going to be incumbent on our community to try to step up and be some type of man like Ed was really is how I feel about that. I feel blessed. I would got to be in his sphere. That's awesome. How about you, Ned? It's hard to kind of put it into words. Since Ed's passing, you realize the size of his footprint, not just for the community, but for me personally, right? Because I'm going over all of the, the early memories of, uh, you know, whether it was, it was the races and celebrating my race wins, he'd be celebrating them with me. We'd be going to the bike show in the early days when mountain bikes were blown up. You know, maybe it was that trip to, you know, visit guys like Tom Ritchie and Gary Fisher out in, in Marin. So many memories, and it's funny, you don't think about that as memories. They're in there, but they're not stimulated. And when someone passes, you you have all these memories, but you don't have that person to share them with anymore. So you share them with the people who uh, who have other memories of Ed, you know, whether it's Gage or John or different people in the community, and that's what you're left with. So I guess it's a reminder that... Uh, you should share memories with people that matter to you while they're still around. Incredibly well put to both of you. And, and again, our goal is to really honor the incredible legacy of Ed Zink. And I think that you've just created an incredible call to action 
Gage, and also, you know, echoed in what you just shared, Ned, that really the way that we carry this forward is by continuing his vision. And for the broader listenership, if you will, of this podcast, think about your own businesses. I think Ed really knew how to create a specialty business by, again, putting the end consumer first, creating experiences. I mean, look at the retail and event experience and how he tied that together. And then the backdrop, the pristine, keeping the area pristine, building awesome trails, bringing together multiple land managers, and to your point, Ned, hiring incredible people to run really important parts of this legacy. All of that is from one man, and that is incredibly proud, and I'm so grateful we were able to come here, and and our hope to you, the bicycle retailer and industry news audience, is that this brings you some inspiration because no matter how challenging it is out there, there is a place in the heart of the consumer for a very special experience that you offer, and I think that everything that we talked about here today proves that, and this is a, I think it's a specialty minded business leader and visionary. Whether he would call himself that or not, that was his approach. And I think that we all have a lot to learn and be inspired from with that. And just know, both of you, how grateful I am that you took the time to be on the Channel Mastery Podcast here today. Steve Frothingham, my editor at Bicycle Retailer, was absolutely delighted when he heard you were interested in doing this. And anytime any of you are in Durango, please stop by the Mountain Bike Specialist's We would love to host you here. And again, thank you, Gage, and thank you, Ned, for taking the time to honor Ed in this podcast today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. If you're finding value in the Channel Mastery Podcast, and I certainly hope you are, I'd love to ask that you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform as well as rate and review the show on iTunes. Doing so helps more people discover the content, more specialty business and brand leaders can be helped by the incredible resources we're offering every week on the show. I also would like to invite you to join our community at channelmastery.com or verdepr.com. Sign up with your email and you'll receive special resources and content created just for friends of the podcast. You'll also receive advance notice of new Channel Mastery trainings and offerings like our brand new digital resource and membership that's opening up in Q3 2019. Thanks for listening and see you next week.